a chance to catch our breath before we go again. Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of F1 in Review, the episode and the hour where we have a chance to look at some of the key talking points from the first few rounds of the F1 22 season, along with news from the world of F1 more generally. We'll also be looking forward as well to the Australian Grand Prix, which starts on the Friday that's coming along. Uh, I'm Tom Claiborne, I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher. You can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter, as well as the F1 in Review accounts we have there as well. Now leading in with our first topic, we're very much focused in the last few episodes, rightly so, on the very front of the grid, but there seems to be a rather strong and competitive battle for fourth place, or maybe even third place brewing in the Constructors' Championship. So, for example, you've got Alpine and you've got Haas in fourth and fifth, respectively, and then individually you've got Ocon in sixth, Magnussen in eighth as well, and lest we forget the double points finish from Alfa Romeo, the first time they've done that in about two years, I believe. And then, of course, there's the double P8 finish from uh, Alpha Tauri as well. Lower down, you've also got a sort of battle for the wooden spoon, shall we say, going on between Aston Martin, seemingly McLaren as well, although of course they did improve in round two, and Williams. But none of them are seriously cut adrift from the main action. And I think looking at this entire sort of topic, we're seeing a scenario now where I say where Previously, it was a sort of A, B and C category. You had the fight for the championship last year between Red Bull and Mercedes. I don't need to tell you that. The third place uh, battle as well between uh, Ferrari and McLaren. But aside from that and aside from Haas, who were very much in a league of their own for all the wrong reasons, there wasn't too much sort of competitiveness going on. It was very much in a tiered system. But looking at this now, it's completely changed. And really, you're in a scenario where Haas could get fourth, Alpi can get fourth, and Mercedes could get drawn into it and I think that's a real testimony to how well these new regulations have gone so far granted we're only two races in both at power circuits may I add as well so we may see a variation when we go to the street circuits namely back to Melbourne but I think if I were a betting man I would say and I can't believe I'm saying this after the last two seasons Haas will get fourth place what do we think though guys because as I say it really could be anyone's after the first two rounds are in fifth place at the moment, which is just nuts. That is bizarre, isn't it? Because they're only four points behind Alpine, which, I, I don't know, something must have dramatically happened in last year's season if we were to have that go ahead in a, in a race. Haas becoming, yeah, quite a strong midfield team. And something I think we kind of predicted going into this, we won't get into the nuances about whether or not you selected one driver or the other, um, compared to Magnussen or Schumacher. But the point is, is both the Haas cars are very strong midfield cars, aren't they? How bizarre. And Tom, when you introed this episode of F1 Review, I did half expect you to say the episode or the hour where we over-review just two ep- two races in Formula 1, <laughs> over-analyse and pass judgment far too quickly. But that is basically what we've got to do. Mm. Mercedes are in second, which is also a bit bizarre. At this point, going into Australia, they are in second, that is, with 38 uh, points compared to 78 points of Ferrari. But I do think Mercedes' is, is time in second place is, shall we say, limited? Because Red mm. Bull is, is rapidly chasing up uh, the, the pack. They're in third place at the moment. But I thought what was brilliant about Saudi Arabia is we had this fight in the Alpines Alonso versus Ocon and who comes creeping up from back the behind 
it's Mr. Bottas. And that mm. was fantastic. And then Haas started creeping up as well. And that's what we want to see. I feel like last season, we had these situations where it would be Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton basically run away. Then the bloke in third, or the team in third, sort of in no man's land. And then there was no competitiveness around sort of the midfield to some extent. But there is real jeopardy this year because what we saw was Alpine fighting with Alpine, which meant that Bottas and the Alfa Romeo could come up and start challenging, which meant that Magnussen in the house could start challenging. And and when you've got such a tightly bunched field, it adds some great drama. And we don't want to see the boring old DRS trains, which I think we are very used to, when usually someone like Alonso would be at the front, and then whoever was trying to get past Alonso would be trying to DRS past them, but someone behind them is DRS, and someone behind them is DRS, and so no one could get past. I felt like there was there is now proper fighting, proper competitiveness, because it was trading places, actually. A lot of these drivers were trading places. And let's face it, we were all looking at Alonso and Ocon because Ocon was trying to <laughs> run Alonso <laughs> off the track. But the, the midfield is fantastic this year. And to some extent, we, we had more time on the midfield during the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix than we did on the on the front because Perez was basically just running away because he was doing such a good job of it that the BWT pink Alpine had all the airtime. So, yeah, I think the midfield is, is a fascinating one this year because I think we don't have that huge, huge performance gap between third place and sort of fourth and fifth. I think actually the the biggest drop-off comes when we look down the pack at Aston Martin, Williams, McLaren, with those teams. So the unfortunately it looks like the, the back of the pack is at the moment a little bit further away than we would like. But the mid-pack is so bunched up and so wonderfully competitive. It's a great battle, isn't it, for fourth place? Alpine currently have the upper hand. Haas in fifth place. Alfa Romeo, you know, looking pretty fast. And I think once Guan Yuzhou gets up to speed, then that will also be a really good... That will give them a really good chance to progress up the pecking order. I can't lie. I don't know about you two. I still have a sneaking feeling about... So who knows as time goes on. I'm not convinced that Mercedes will get dragged back into the midfield battle. I think, again, their car will improve and develop as the year goes on. I think they've got, obviously, one of the greatest drivers of all time. And George Russell seems to have hit the ground running in that team. But in terms of fourth place, I wouldn't say Alpine. As long as they don't make continue to make weird strategy decisions, like in Saudi Arabia, where instead of... Uh, considering the fact that they could possibly get close to George Russell, they thought, you know what, we're going to let our two drivers race and take time off each other mm, and yeah, yeah. prevent ourselves from getting into more of a fight. Um, I'm not saying they threw away points there, but realistically, and of course the race can go on and change its complexion as the like, as the night goes on in that case, but at the same time I feel like they did throw away an opportunity to maybe get some higher points. Mm. And, they, and admittedly, Alonso wouldn't have got those points anyway because of his mechanical retirement, but you feel like there was more there possible, and they did. They kind of didn't give themselves the best possible chance. But as long as, as long as they avoid those decisions, their car looks rapid. Their car looks really quick. Um, out of that midfield group from last year, which was, I guess, Ferrari, McLaren, Alpine, Alpha Tauri, Aston Martin. And Ferrari have obviously gone on a step, and they're title contenders. Yeah. Aston Martin have for sure gone very, very backwards. Alpha Tauri have kind of stayed part of where they were, but have obviously got a top-class driver in Pierre Gasly and improving a young driver in Sonoda. But I think Alpine have been the ones from that midfield who've branched out to lead that other... Again, other than Ferrari, have branched out to lead that midfield, and their car looks 
it looks good on track, as in driving-wise, not the pink colour scheme. Um, <laughs> oh, I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not for me, not for me. I just see it. I just see a racing point again. <laughs> yeah, um, especially with Sat- Otmar Safnauer in charge. It's just a mirror of two years ago. Um, but I think that Alpine's done the best chance, possibly, of getting that fourth place, based on what we've seen so far. But again. Who knows, really? I mean, and it's such a cop out to say who knows, or to say something like, "Well, we can only only time will tell as the, as the year goes on." But <laughs> that is literally. I so hope you're right with McLaren. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, I think a lot of it comes down to how well the driver pairings operate and how often they score points. I mean, that's quite obvious to say, isn't it? But when you look at Haas, for example, and you consider that they sort of have an AlphaTauri-itis about them, and so do AlphaTauri themselves, unsurprisingly, where you've got one driver who's smashing it. You've got Kevin Magnussen uh, on this occasion with fifth and ninth, and then um, you've got Pierre Gasly doing rather well as well for AlphaTauri, uh, continuing on from where he left off. But... um. If you've only got one driver scoring points, the other one's either retiring, owing to other issues, or not getting points, that's a problem. So for me, it comes down to not so much what strategy calls are made, although they're very important, not so much reliability, although once again, very important, or development moving forwards. It's which driver pairing out of the teams from 4th to 7th, or even 8th if you're cleaning McLaren, that you back the most to deliver over the entirety of the season. And currently... I think if you're looking at reputation and looking at history, you would probably say Alpine because you've got Alonso, who's a multi-time world champion winner. You've got Ocon as well. He was part of the Mercedes Academy and, again, has had a rather solid career so far uh, in Formula 1, winning a race, doing rather well, not only with Alpine, but also with Racing Point as well. So the quality's there. Meanwhile, you know, contrary to what I said earlier about Haas, they've got young raw talent in Schumacher who we know is very good and they've got Magnussen who has done well so far but he's come back into the sport and ultimately was dropped for a reason insofar that he wasn't good enough to continue to be kept on when there was a huge pot of money there for uh, Gene Haas and co. When you Joe as you say is similar to I'd say someone like Schumacher very raw as we saw got a points finish but then was out of it for the season uh, race afterwards should I say and Sonoda I mean Sonoda is the definition of raw talent. He's up there in the points doing rather well. Look at Abu Dhabi fourth place or he's down there crashing out in corner two. So it it really does depend on who you back the most. But I have a sneaky feeling that because of what we saw from uh, Alpine and the indecision and lack of, I say, clarity and leadership really from Otmar and co, where they let them fight for no real gain for the team at all. And they should have, as we alluded to last episode, Nanga said, gone after Russell instead of going after themselves, they may just fall victim of uh, their own potential and um, the, the, the quality they have in the two drivers. How worried are you about the reliability issues that Alpine have displayed, I think, over the last two races? Because Fernando Alonso is on his third engine. Three out of three. So one of the nuances of the Formula One is you get a number of parts that you're allowed to replace without penalty. So we have 23 races this year and you get three engines. And if you then go to a fourth engine, you then get a penalty. Fernando Alonso is on his third engine. This one goes kaput. Well, he's got to reuse one of the other broken engines. I think the first engine is reusable, but I'm pretty sure the one that went pop in Saudi Arabia is not is no good no more. Um, so, yeah, I think he's going to be a problem um, there. But on the flip side of that, you're not allowed to make drastic power changes to the engines either. So all the development that's going to have to happen to the engine will be entirely from a reliability um, perspective. So this is why the Mercedes teams are all a little bit worried because at the moment, 
Mercedes can't bring any changes to the engine that's going to increase that power. So currently it looks like we have the following. Ferrari engine, high horsepower, looks like it's got good reliability, all round solid engine. They've managed to extract more power out of the E10 fuel, so that's 10% ethanol now. And have put together a good package, right? That's excellent. Haas and Alfa Romeo will be riding that wave. Then we've got the Renault team, um, the Renault power unit team, because they supply the engines to Alpine, who have designed an engine which looks to be quite powerful, but not very reliable. Then we've got the Red Bull powertrains team, which took over from Honda, who've also got the reliable-ish. How would we rate mm. them? Would you, would you say you've got great confidence in Hon- in the uh, Red Bull powertrains at the moment? I mean, it's not great so far. It's very 50-50, isn't it? When we look at the fact that both are retired, that is the Red Bull cars themselves, yeah. the works team at Bahrain, and then Sonoda didn't start and retired as well at uh, Bahrain. So um, yeah, it's a bit 50-50, I'd so say. We'll, yeah, we'll see where they go. And then we've got Mercedes, which seems to be just lacking, lacking in power. So I, I suppose the question I have is, is it enough just to have the two drivers? Because I'm personally a little bit worried about Alpine's reliability issues. They are the only team in Formula 1 at the moment that are running the Renault engines. They are fast engines. They are powerful, but they're just not reliable. So surely Alonso is going to get a penalty pretty soon. You know, I'm talking five or six races, maybe seven races down the line when they have to inevitably change the power unit. And that's just going to throw a spanner in the works because of that would a 10 place grid penalty for example would put him right back behind a really competitive midfield so do you think to some extent the reliability issues might be shooting alpine in the foot it's an interesting one because you're right they're on their third engine and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that three engines after two races is not ideal um, no matter how big the, allega- the allocation may be <laughs> 22 23 it's... power units in one season <laughs> yeah, do, yeah, do the maths. Uh, in terms of Alpine, am I worried about them? It's too early to tell. I just that phrase again. But based on the first few races, Ferrari's engine looks good. Like we said, with the improvements they've made, the possible upgrade packages they may bring. And I think that's a part of the big reason why Haas and Alfa Romeo have gone from being basement bottom last year to being consistent at the top of the midfield so far in the first couple of races both in qualifying and on the Sundays. But I think there's, again, still time for Renault to bring back their engine. They've got the advantage of only being able to focus on one team. I say advantage, that is, you could phrase it as an advantage in terms of they have to please less uh, teams, but it could also be a disadvantage and they have less data to go by from different teams. For example, a Mercedes engine is running four different cars and they can translate all the data from that pick and choose it have a look at it examine different things but at the same time i think like perhaps renault can bring a good engine to alpine and develop it red bull powertrains what do i think of them i think they've had a <clears throat> interesting start um interesting being unreliable to be honest so far because you had what was it three retirements in bahrain and then did not start for Yuki Tsunoda in Saudi Arabia. And it wasn't just a did not start, he didn't even take part in qualifying. And both those days, the problem was related to the engine being an issue, an issue with the engine. So, again, it's a, it's early days for that team especially, that team of people working for Red Bull Powertrains, or RBPT, as they're said here on Wikipedia. Um, I'm not sure, I don't know. I, th- I feel like Red Bull, Red Bull do have as well the all the knowledge and expertise from Honda, which they had brought from the last few years. Lest we forget as well, they've actually employed a lot of people from other teams like Mercedes in their mm. Red Bull powertrains team. So there's lots of experience and expertise there. It's fair to say that Ferrari have got a head start with that. Red Bull powertrains perhaps need to catch up a little bit, but what you feel like I feel like once they get their reliability sorted, then they'll be in a good position. Renault again reliability needs to get sorted so that could it could be an interesting factor in the midfield battle going forward like what stage or what state those 
And quickly before we move on to our next topic, I'll just say in regards to Alpine, you could see them adopt what I'll loosely describe as the Mercedes doctrine of last year, which was essentially, oh bother, we need a new engine or another key part of the car to be replaced, let's take the hit, go back, uh, take the 10 place grid penalty and then just spring our way up. And because the middle, the midfield is so level, I'd say there's such a small gap between themselves, Alpha Tauri, Alpha Romeo and co, they may take the hit and then think, well, we've got one of the best engines, we'll do it at a circuit that can overtake, all those great opportunities to overtake out, should I say, and then come back with a, a decent handful of points, let's say three, four, five, something like that, and at the end of the day, when you have such reliability issues and your equipment is not sustainable as you'd like it to be, you'd say that's a pretty good weekend. So we may see that happen, and I think we'll see many a team do it in the sort of upper echelons of the midfield, and dare I say in the top three as well, or top two because of the issues we highlighted last season around if you go and take a grid penalty of 10 places but your equipment is so good you're going to do it anyway because the penalty you get is then reduced because of the equipment you have that makes any sense at all so Mm -hmm. we could see that happen again but um as we say so many times in this episode only time will tell but is is their performance that good because i don't think it's enough it's not like Bottas last year who took six engines and he was in a Mercedes, so he could kind of cut through the field. Yeah, Is Alpine so fast that they can cut through the midfield? Because in the best will of the world, they qualified, let's say, third and then 13th. Well, now you're behind five midfield cars. That's, that would be all the Alfa Romeos. That would be all the Hasses. That would be all the Alfa Tauris, etc., and to me, that's an awful lot of work and a huge impact in points. I just wonder whether or not you've got that much confidence in Alpine this year. I think it's a combination of confidence in them and seeing what they can do, but then also the regulation changes and the fact that cars can now so easily follow one another and overtake courtesy of the uh, the DRS chess that's going on. I think it reduces the task that someone like Alpine would face if they were lower down. But once again, it, it also depends on how other cars and teams develop. I don't imagine that uh, McLaren will be continuing on their sort of current train of development or points finishing. They'll no doubt join the party. So that's another thing to sort of comprehend and to uh, to deal with if you're Alpine or so. But um. I'd say, put it this way, the task they would have if they took that uh, decision and strategy would be reduced versus where they to do it last season, for example. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to Las Vegas. And in other news, so is Formula One in November 2023. This means this will be the third... Wait, where are we going? <laughs> Tomorrow, mate. Tickets yeah. are booked. Uh. <laughs> now, this will be the third race in the uh, Grand Prix calendar come 2023. It's a 3.8 mile track, which will include uh, various famous bits of the strip there. And it has a three-year contract. Like many a new race coming to Formula One, this will be held at 9. Uh, 10 o'clock p.m. local time and that means it will be broadcast uh, 6 a.m. GMT time early Sunday morning if you're watching in the UK. The last time we were in Vegas was back in 1981 and 82. So what are our thoughts on this? On the track itself, it gives me personally rather strong power track vibes, many a long straight, few uh, heavy braking corners, but that's just my thoughts. What are your thoughts on uh, the Vegas return? Are we excited? Are we that? Are we really excited? What's the consensus here? Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's a bit. Fun. But Twitter was going nuts. I, I like. I, I quite like Twitter talk because I do sort of lurk. I think is the right description of me on Twitter. <laughs> I lurk and just assess what the general vibe is. People are really going mad for it. I don't know. It's if you, yeah, if you haven't looked at the track layout, you should spend a moment when you get a chance just to Google it, what it looks like, because you'll then understand, I think, a little bit about what we mean by a power track. And it's very, very long and very, very fast. But I think the coolest thing about it is it goes down the Las Vegas Strip, which means they're actually going to close it. Because you can't have people running around whilst cars are going maximum speed of 
know, 200 odd miles an hour. But yeah, Angus, you didn't seem that enthusiastic either. I think, well, first of all, I would never take what Twitter says as a, <laughs> a um, acceptable barometer of the general public's uh, f- feeling towards something. I, I wouldn't trust Twitter anyway with, with much, to be honest with you. Uh, but that's another argument separately. Uh, looking at the circuit and the whole event, this screams dollars and money to me. <laughs> Absolutely screams it, honestly. Simply because I get for years and years they've been wanting to have races in Hollywood, ironically it's not Hollywood, but Hollywood style locations or taking races yeah. to flashy mm-hmm. locations. For years there's been talk of a London Grand Prix and whilst it would be a phenomenal thing, you'd think would it really produce a, would it really enhance the calendar? This event enhances the calendar in certain ways it expands f1's profile it takes f1 to an incredibly famous place it opens up that american market and those for formula one's financial sustainability yes those are good but what do we see here street circuit we've already got loads of those night race we got loads of those um street circuit with long straights and minimal corners we got we got those already street circuit and location which doesn't really have a formula on history but is really good for advertising and revenue we've got those already but we've got another one now it's just been shoot shoehorned in and looking at the circuit i mean yeah it's fast but Jeddah's fast baku's fast we got those already yeah. and these and these are all play these are all i admit that you a race in the usa has more appeal than a race in countries with minimal winter sport legacy or history i.e saudi arabia and azerbaijan but if, do, do we need it i mean they're gonna have the race on a saturday night well okay great is that supposed to persuade me it's a good idea we're we gonna have mm-hmm. we're we gonna have uh people watching it in europe and uh, they've made sure they can have people watching it in europe so it's still a good time for tv um right, 6 a.m here <laughs> yeah so mm. The Australians have the best time because I believe it'll be about 6pm there. Apologies if you are from Australia and I've got your time zone wrong, but you will get it in the evening. So, ironically, Angus, it's a, a, a race that's held on a Saturday for American viewers, but its best time zone will probably be like New Zealand, Australia. <laughs> for Europe, you know, where F1 is, and this is true, most popular it's crap. It's a crap time zone for us. <laughs> 6 a.m. here. Europe will be even worse. It's all about the money. They want three races in America. They want two races in China. They want Middle Eastern countries to pay £100 million a year to host a race. They're willing to ditch circuits which have incredible history and are the fabric of the calendar. They're willing to bin off places like Spa and Monaco and Silverstone and Monza, or at least up their contracts so that they then are basically priced out of hosting a Formula 1 race. Places like Germany and France as well, which are just um, shades and heaps of motorsport history. Just because they want flashy things. They want a second race in China, apparently. Other than the Chinese market being large, why do we need it? We don't need one race in China, to be honest with you. It's not, there's not a, I get they want to capitalise on a big market, and now with Guan Yu Zhou obviously being on the grid, but it's just, it's it absolutely. I say it again. It absolutely screams money. Genuinely, six kilometer night race, street track in a famous city, that ticks so many boxes of what we have already, but also what they're looking for. We've got a street track in Miami, as mm. well. Why yeah. do we need another? Mm. Why do we need another American street track? Three American races, okay. But are you really willing to sacrifice motorsport heritage and legacy for? just trying to tap into markets it's so obviously trying to tap into the drive to survive hype as well it's yep. so it's so so obvious that that's what i'm trying to do um and it is for me it's all about the flash and the glam as opposed to anything that actually is what it's going to be one of those circuits where the race could be really poor quality yeah but everyone would go oh it's vegas it's brilliant it yeah, could be yeah, a yeah. it could be a solid four or five out of ten race as when i say solid as in like like doesn't adjust doesn't move from that like level of uh, quality and everyone would be like oh but it was great it's vegas it was really the lights the lights are pretty it was nice um mm-hmm. it's just i'm I'm not convinced myself admittedly having a race on the strip is pretty cool but 
I don't want my races to be on the calendar because they're pretty cool. I want I want to be like producing good racing. Like is and I don't know, it should, it doesn't it doesn't feel necessary. It felt like and also but it came out of nowhere as well. I did not see this coming. Usually mm. usually you hear a bit of a rumor about like oh there might be a race in in, in this new location. I I heard a few yeah. rumors. I had a few for a while it was a little bit of of F1's worst kept secret. Uh, but what I want to know is, is this a continuation of some of the issues that we were highlighting last week? Tom, is yes. this is this once again F1 landing kind of on the on the wrong side of the argument, then following the money, as Angus says, as opposed to perhaps acting in, in good faith as custodians of a sport that's been going on for 80 odd years now it absolutely is yes as angus says it's motivated by money and name recognition and i could excuse those two things because of course they're very necessary to grow the audience of formula one and to keep it going and to keep it strong long into the future the track itself looking at that in isolation is underwhelming to say the very least it seems to be with every new track that comes in they are power circuit 100 percent there seems to just be many, 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 many straights, one or two corners that involve heavy braking to try and balance it out, but nothing that really forces drivers to be experts of their craft and where the best driver with, let's say, decent equipment wins the race. It just seems to be the car and the team that have the best straight line speed will do fine, and that's that's good. And of course, you need some circuits like that for balance, for the interest of uh, entertainment, to see many overtaking taking place in various races. But you do need a bit of balance between those type of circuits and the straight circuits of, let's say, Hungary, Monaco, uh, and Spain and the like. Um, Australia as well, or the older version uh, that we had before the two-year hiatus courtesy of COVID and the rejuvenated one we've got now, which we'll talk about later. But you need a bit more of balance in that because otherwise it's just cars going round and round in circles at top speed. Oh, DRS train, oh, someone overtakes. Oh, and they um, they wait for the other detection zone. Oh, and they overtake. And we get involved in a sort of an artificial cycle of DRS chess where it's just whoever crosses the right line at the right time for DRS will then make the overtake and we're into that sort of scenario. So I am annoyed by this circuit if we're looking at it purely for what it is because it's a very simple circuit which is trying to force entertainment rather than a track which will challenge racers, will challenge teams, will challenge everyone involved in the sport, which there needs to be that element because otherwise it's just anyone can jump into a Formula 1 car within reason, can go around the circuit, can appear to be a fantastic driver, but in reality what they're racing at is a, let's say, 4 out of 10 difficulty circuit. So I would just urge Formula 1, if they're listening to this very podcast, to have a good balance between uh, the difficulties that their tracks have in the future because otherwise we'll just see many a track that are like Jeddah, which are like Las Vegas, and it's just... Essentially, a glorified circle. It is a bit of a glorious, glorified circle. And to to our wonderful American listeners out there, of which there are many, it's not like we don't want to be in America. And that's important no. because I was a very verbal critic when they proposed to go to Silverstone two weeks in a row. So it's not like... We're sitting here going, oh, I don't want it to be in America very much. We don't want to go to America. It's not that at all. In fact, Circuit of the America is one of my favourite tracks on the F1 calendar. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I'm looking forward to Miami. I am. I think it was a good decision to have a, a power track in America. The problem I have with with Las Vegas is exactly what Tom and Angus, you've said, this doesn't add anything. It just creates noise. It extends the calendar out to almost ridiculous levels. We are approaching a 30-race calendar, right? That is that the end goal now? We just have a 30-race calendar. F1 going out to the highest bidder. I would, I would have loved it if F1 had said, do you know what? We we want to we want to go back to one of the his, you know older American tracks. We want to give the oval sort of track a go again because that was so unique 
but they haven't. What they've basically done is sat down on a map and said, right, there's Caesar's Palace. There's the old Eiffel Tower thing. There's the strip. There's the big water thing that goes up. There's the, the planet, half of a planet Earth that someone's stuck on a piece of concrete. Those are the big things that people go to Las Vegas for. Let's make the cars go around that. And then uh, let, that way people will go gambling afterwards. Which to me sounds very responsible. Very, very responsible there. And that's what annoys me about this. And I'm going to watch it. And I'll enjoy it. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I am going to enjoy it. Of course I am. Because we love Formula 1 in, in any shape and form. But it's just not going to add anything to the season, I don't think. It, we've already got the high speeds from the power tracks. We've got Monza and Bahrain. <laughs> Saudi Arabia. Which is a nuts track. If you want a fast street circuit, also Baku, Azerbaijan. And we've already got that ticked off. And so I, I, th- I guess the, you know, then, then USP about this is going to be, you can now go to Las Vegas, get drunk, gamble your money away, go watch Formula One, and then combine all those events in one place. But, you know, when we were looking at Saudi Arabia and how they're building that custom palace of, of entertainment, the big resort they're building at the moment mm. with the track going around it. Well, this is basically what that's going to be. This is, you know, a, a, a track that's going to go around a, basically a giant amusement park. And that's what they, they've decided to do. So yeah, I, I'm pretty disappointed in what, the, what it is. And so I think we could have done better. I don't think this is taking care of the calendar as, as you say, Angus, especially when other tracks like Spa like Monza, could be under threat going into the future. I mean, blimey, even Silverstone. Even mm. Silverstone is potentially under threat. And I'm not a massive fan of Silverstone, but I'm more a fan of it for, than this. And this just doesn't... This just, I don't know, it, it just feels like they're chasing the money. And I think they could have done better if they wanted another American race. But... I'm all up for going to other places, you know. If if you actually want to add a 23rd or 24th or 25th race to the calendar, where's South America? You know, what about South America a bit more? What about South Africa? We could go back to somewhere like, you know, uh, like Malaysia. There are all these possible options. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like I, it's all a little bit disheartening at the moment what they're currently doing with the, the Formula 1 season. It, it's is it almost becoming too much now. Well, it's interesting you say about the 30-race calendar because that, I imagine, is taken from a quote from Stefano Domenicali when the race was announced about how he said, if there are enough events wanting or having the will to want an F1 race, that there could be a 30-race calendar. Now, it's an interesting one because you've also mentioned about races dropping off the calendar. Now, that's because in the Concord Agreement, which is the agreement which the teams and drivers and FIA and all the organisations sign, uh, they they basically hammer out this, this deal on the running of the sport every, like, 10 years or so. The limit in that contract, the, that agreement, is to have 24 races and no more. So that makes you think with we currently have 23 when russia gets replaced but we don't have qatar which has a new deal starting next year after it's not on this year because it's because it's the football world cup year Mm -hmm. you also have china returning next year because that's not currently on the calendar so that would take us to 25 at las vegas takes us 26 so that is two races you need to lose and also but bear in mind other ones like the future possibility of a race in Africa, back in South Africa, which used to host Grand Prix for many years. The possibility of a second race in China, as I mentioned earlier. That means you're losing two, three, four races from the calendar currently. And it begs the question, which ones do go? I said Silverstone. I think I mentioned Silverstone not because it's directly under threat at the moment, but because it always does seem to be at threat because it Mm. has been a lot of times in the past. Spa is one which I think is genuinely under threat. Yeah. There's been questions raised about his safety, uh, mm. obviously with the, the well, the fatal crash of Antoine Hubert a couple of years ago, but also we saw last year when it was wet, it was just impossible to drive. And admittedly, that was possibly just adverse weather conditions that weekend, but it has improvements to be made. France as well is another one which has been vaulted as 
possibly being well vo- vaulted as being vaulted off the calendar soon yeah because there's massive logistical problems it's in the middle of flipping nowhere out in the <laughs> french countryside possibly other ones like spain i think once fernando alonso retires the appetite for a spanish race may diminish honestly even though science is on the grid and it makes you it, it's a really interesting question of do they sacrifice history for novelty and entertainment and what sells because undoubtedly a race in vegas sells for mm. sure for yep. sure just like a race in singapore sells cause it's a night race just like a race in miami sells like a race in holland sells because of the popularity of max verstappen but it is it gets to the point or it will get to the point where you think right are we willing to sacrifice that factor of entertainment for that factor of integrity and legacy of the calendar and motorsport history you can never forget your history you can never forget your history mm-hmm. about anything uh not just formula one and it also begs the question of as well burnout these drivers and team not the drivers i'm thinking mainly the mechanics and the people who do all the hard work behind the scenes in these teams they're currently encountered with 23 race weekends a year which they're working plus all the bits in between to get the cars ready to get them sorted and i get it's a formula one team it's a high pressure high intensity high quality organization for sure it is but you can't prioritize that completely over the risk of people burning out or the risk of mental fragility at the ex- at the expense of it so the thought of th- people used to say oh 17 18 races that's a tough season there was a used to be the fact that if you had triple headers weekends where three weekends in a row where there were f1 races again that was that was considered too far realistically but now we have triple headers every year pretty much we had i yep. we had two triple headers mm. last year quite possibly if i remember so it that raises another interesting question of the effect on the workers the dedicated men and women in these f1 teams who you don't see as often as the drivers or the team principals but who work their backsides off to give these drivers the best possible cars and the impact of of them on a expanded calendar more time away from their families etc so it's, it raises lot. I think this announcement of the Las Vegas race has raised lots of interesting questions on many parts of like F1, its calendar, and its its workforce as well. And on the topics of tracks, we are going back to Australia after a two-year hiatus, which is enforced owing to the pandemic and travel restrictions put in place by the Australian government. We've not been to Melbourne since 2019 for a race, although of course everyone did shack up in 2020 for them to be sent home owing to the pandemic, which is growing in real force at that time. But we're not returning to the old Aussie Grand Prix, we're returning to a new circuit or a developed circuit, and it's placing the calendars change as well, no longer the curtain raiser for the season but are now in round three so turn one three six eleven and thirteen make notes have changed turn nine and ten have gone all together and the pit lane is now wider so what are our thoughts now on there being four drs detection zones and straights on this circuit are we happy to see melbourne back are we happy the position it has in the, t- the calendar has changed what are our thoughts on the return to melbourne albert park don't worry about the four DRS zones to some extent because they're not quite so back-to-back as we've experienced in the last couple of races. So I'm hoping we'll get less leapfrogging, which I think is quite a good term for it. The idea is you you kind of let your opponent drive in front of you over the DRS detection line, then you get the DRS, but because you're basically faster anyway, you then get past them again. So I think we'll see less of that. I'm also hoping that because they've widened turn one, we'll get less of a big crumple of cars going into the first corner at the beginning of the race, which I guess would make everybody happy. But I think just to sidestep the quality of the the track redevelopment, which I've been paying close attention to, and it is fantastic, a big smiles around, I think, for a certain Sebastian Vettel, which is returning this weekend uh, in great style, I think to the Australian Grand Prix, continuing his trend of starting a Formula 1 season at Australia, which I like to think is the rightful place to start a Formula 1 season from. So, welcome back, Sebastian Vettel, and I hope you're feeling better. Let's hope the car can uh, live up to 
well, a, a four-time world champion uh, in it. Yeah, it's uh, great to be back in Australia. It really is. I say that we're not in Australia, but we're not. As, 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 yeah. yeah, I wish I was. Uh, as F1, <laughs> in terms of F1, I think it's great to be back in Australia. It's a shame it's not the curtain raiser anymore. I think I just, I mean, I associate my introduction to Formula One in my younger years with waking up first race of the season, nice and early. That race being on in Australia, I just that was always something I associated F1 with. But at the same time, whatever position it is on the calendar, it's great to be back. It's great to be returning to the place where, yeah, the season traditionally gets started, but also a place where there's been lots of memorable moments over the years. And lots of, it tends to also produce, I was looking at it just now, it tends to produce different winners. It doesn't hasn't had one driver who's dominated over the years. With its position as the season opening race, it has tended to throw up more diverse, a more diverse amount of winners, you could say. So it'll be good to go back. And yes, this new track layout, the new track. So to summarise what they've done is they've basically, because if there's one criticism labelled at the Australian Grand Prix, it's the fact that the racing could be better. It's not a circuit that has had great racing compared to other ones, for example, Spa or Silverstone or Bahrain, the ones that come to mind. But some changes have been made. For example, the chicane at formerly what was turn 9 and 10, has now been replaced by a sort of a more curved straight, basically creating a longer flat out zone and creating a, yeah, a longer um, part of the track, which is flat out to then break down into what's now been tightened at turn 13. I believe it still is turn 30. I think the number of corners hasn't changed, but what is heavy braking at the, it'd be the fourth to last corner, that corner which used to be about fourth gear corner, but now it's going to be a heavy braking second gear, like 90 degree corner at the end of the flat out section. And you've also got other parts. There's bits of resurfacing. Other A couple of other corners have been uh, like widened out, I'd say, more yeah. than tightened. Obviously, there's that one corner I mentioned, which has been turned to more of a heavy braking zone. But the point being that they want a, a good tonic for a F1 track to have overtaking possibilities, to have a long straight followed by a heavy braking corner, which encourages different lines and also encourages drivers to, I guess, dive bomb from further back to go yeah. for the overtake. So that is what they have uh, changed the track to. They haven't altered too much. They've done little things here and there. You mentioned the resurfacing of the area around the pit lane. They've increased the pit lane speed limiter as well. That's one of the changes they've made. But generally, it is still vastly, mostly the same track. Lap times will be about five or six seconds quicker, it's estimated, compared to what the track... So the track used to produce like a one twenty-five, a 1 minute 25 lap. It would probably be about, even with the slightly slower cars this year, we're thinking around about 1 minute 20. But it'll be interesting to see if these changes improve the racing or not. Because Albert Park street circuit, yes. But it's not your, it's not your Jeddah, it's not your Baku, it's not your Monaco where... It's really tight. I know we get long straights and overtaking possibilities at Jeddah and Baku, but the walls are still tight. It's still an enclosed area. It makes the driving of film more claustrophobic. It makes it feel like they're more on the limit. And whilst Albert Park is technically a street circuit, you do have some tight areas, but you do have wider areas, more runoff, uh, more of the old-style gravel and grass than the tarmac runoffs we often see these days. Mm-hmm. But still, it's not your traditional street circuit like a Singapore, I guess. So yeah. there has been chances for overtaking, but not as much. And that's why I think these changes have been brought in. But it'll be interesting to see how they get on and we'll be able to judge, as well we can judge it alongside the continued judgment we're making of the race, raceability of the current new generation of F1 cars. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's great to be back in Australia, isn't it, after a two-year break? And there was part of me that thought, owing to the restrictions put in place by the national government and the fact that many a race and track are falling off, as we've alluded to earlier, that we may never return to Melbourne because, historically, as we say, it's never been the most uh, competitive circuit, has it, when it's when it's come to, to racing. And qualifying's been very important, always been quite narrow. I've never been the biggest fan of it, but I've never disliked it, I'd say. And I suppose the changes being made here, the widening of certain areas, the reduction and uh, corners disappearing in many cases, shows that 
many a circuits trying to develop to survive, to sort of adapt to the current calendar of Formula One and the desire for there to be more opportunities to overtake and the like. And I do feel going into this that um, healthy changes have been made without ripping away the very soul of Albert Park and um, sort of losing its identity, really. So I'm looking forward to this. I mean, historically, uh, Ferrari have done quite well at the circuit, I believe, as have Mercedes, as have Red Bull, really. So there's no necessarily, even with the adapted circuit, there's no clear and outright winner and someone who's going to go away with the competition and who is naturally suited to it. So I'm very excited to see it. And it's weird, isn't it, it not being the curtain raiser of the season, but I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily because we've always gone into this race without knowing what we're going to see moving forwards and while it's not going to be predictable uh, when it comes to this race at all we do know where the cars roughly lie in terms of how competitive they are how fast they are and who we think is going to be on the top step of the podium and the supporting to others shall we say so I'm happy to see it back. I don't really mind too much about its um its changing position in the calendar. I think it deserves to be towards the start, however, versus, let's say, the one before uh, the final Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi or the one before that. So um, I think healthy changes have been made. Glad to see we're back. And um, congratulations to those living down under. Um, it's nice to uh, have your Grand Prix back. And um, nice to see another one not sort of fall off the edge in uh, in space of a new circuit coming up. Yeah, the the changes are fantastic. They really, I think, will make a big difference. And it was only a matter of time, I guess, because cars are getting so wide now. I went back and watched some old races, 2004, 2007, and actually even 2008, 2009. Basically, before we got into this new turbo hybrid era, the cars were so much thinner. They looked like go-karts with aero is how i like to think of them and of course they also didn't run slicks i completely forgot that they didn't run slicks either they had grooved um slick tires but let's face it albert park is a bit like some of the other historic tracks i'm using historic in a very loose term here but historic tracks where they are just a bit too thin and so I think these changes were necessary to sort of encourage a continuation of the track. So that I'm really, really pleased. And there are some great videos actually from the Albert Park team of like drive rounds of the of the new layout. So it's quite cool to take a look at what it looks like uh, at the moment. And so, yeah, Sunday, bring on Sunday, I suppose, when I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. as it will be here and, and tune into it. I guess my only concern, and this isn't something I considered before before this season is is albert park only special to us because it's the first race of the season and if so is it going to be a little bit disappointing at the end and perhaps maybe they knew that hence why they changed it what do you think i would disagree simply because i think i go back to the point about motorsport heritage again there's a big motorsport heritage in australia in my opinion there's a history of f1 drivers there who've made it big, who've been extremely talented. And it doesn't seem as much to be a trying to take advantage of a specific market, to be honest, simply because as well there's been a race in Australia. I mean, Australia doesn't just go back to Albert Park, which has been around since 1996. There was an F1 race in Adelaide for a decade before that, again on a street circuit. So I feel like... And there are Australian, there is an Australian world champion, or there are Australian world champions in Jack Brabham and Alan Jones. So for me, it feels like there is more of a heritage there. And Adelaide actually used to host the final race of the season. So it used to be the season finale. It used to be their Abu Dhabi back in the day, or their Interlagos, always finishing the season at the like the last race. So I still consider it a big part of the calendar. I don't see it dropping off and. I still think it has the potential to be a good race, even if it's not race one specifically. Yeah, and not only congratulations to Seb Vettel for returning sort of uh, two races or three races in, should I say, to this season. He's got a hell of a task on his hand. But also congratulations to uh, Daniel Ricciardo as well, who, of course, has been without his own home Grand Prix for two years now and always speaks so fondly of Albert Park going back to Melbourne. And um, after, I remember, quite a disastrous start when he was last there with Renault after, I remember, he tried to overtake Sergio Perez, if uh, memory serves me correctly, went a bit too wide and then lost his uh, his front nose 
literally before the first turn. So fingers crossed, he may be with a different car that's um, probably on par with that Renault car, in all honesty, after the first two races. But uh, hopefully a different outcome. Hopefully he can at least make one lap round <laughs> the circuit. <laughs> they not even make the first corner, but there we go. I think they removed that big bump in the ground that took out his front wing uh, back when that poor incident happened to him in the Renault. I suppose in the last few minutes then, I want to I wanna hear your predictions for this this new formed Albert Park. Who who's gonna win it? Who's gonna take that crown? Ooh, well I think I think Verstappen first. I think Sainz second. I think <laughs> George Russell third. Really, Ooh. Oh, Georgie boy, eh? It's it's interesting because I think that these changes actually, with the removal of a chicane with the straightening of some corners with the heavier braking zone into that turn 13 I think that you, it's not a power circuit don't get me wrong but it definitely is one where the power unit has more of a role in determining your performance so for me that makes Ferrari the favourites so I will go with Leclerc to win this one I think I think he still has the upper hand over science so I'm thinking of course Red Bull will be strong I think it still has this circuit still has characteristics which suits their car. Lots of medium speed corners, lots of quick left rights with the chicanes and the sort of like well, they're, they're, not all of them can be classified as chicanes, but there's lots of quick left rights. So I think Red Bull will be strong, but I think Ferrari may just have a bit too much in the tank. It's interesting, really, when we we talk about them because I I suddenly had a realization now that I have no idea how Red Bull's going to perform here because mm. historically. This was the track where Sebastian Vettel landed in Ferrari and we all sat there thinking, is this going to be the year that Mercedes is going to lose it? So I I, I suppose I side with Angus because Ferrari is the only ones at the moment with that historic prowess at the Australian Grand Prix that is currently doing very well. I don't think Mercedes is necessarily going to perform quite well here. So... No, I think I think to some extent this is going to be Ferrari's Ferrari's one to lose. But Max is so good. But I I don't know. I I think I disagree with you. I think maybe Science might have it in the you know in the tank at the moment. I think he could perhaps be Leclerc's thorn in the side and and challenge him. Or at least I really do hope hope he is. I mean, let's not forget also Perez proved himself at the last Grand Prix that he was perhaps going to you know take it away from from max and and take the limelight away from max so it is certainly going to be interesting my, my prediction is therefore i reckon it's going to be a ferrari one two science followed by leclerc i think well i think science is going to win mainly because i'm just going to have to disagree with angus i think there's no there's no other no other justification than that than i was gonna to have to disagree with angus but i guess yeah Ferrari, one, two, science followed by Leclerc because I have to be different to Angus, and then Max in third. But let's face it, it is is entirely all, all to play for. And I, I look forward to eating humble pie in just one week's time. And looking at the time, it seems that's all we have time for on episode six of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening to nearly an hour of us talk about the midfield battle and the Australian Grand Prix coming back after two years, among other things. We're going back to Albert Park, as we say, after a two-year hiatus owing to you-know-what, but to a reformed and renewed circuit from when we were last there. Thank you very much for listening to us, whether that's via your preferred podcast provider, your Apples, your Spotify's, your Podfollows, all of that good stuff, or whether you've listened live or via the Listen Back feature on river radio you can follow myself and tristan uh, individually on twitter or this entire podcast at f1 in review search that up and you'll find us on there and as we say look forward now to round three of this 2022 season after a short break from the saudi arabian grand prix things are looking pretty interesting it'll be very interesting to see how the midfield battle which we spoke about manifests itself in that race and the other ones moving forwards as well in terms of timings 
if you're going to be watching or listening to qualifying on Saturday and you're in the UK. The start time will be 7am, that's British summer time, and then the race unfortunately is slightly earlier, that's 6am UK British summer time as well. Congratulations to all those down under, you've got your Grand Prix back, we look forward to seeing how Albert Park fares, and of course Daniel Ricciardo who's back there as we say, like the rest of uh, Formula 1 after a two year break that's all we have time for and we look forward to looking back at this race in the next episode until next time though thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon cheers bye bye